0: Um, Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. Um, as I mentioned, I'm De Slater, and um, I am joined this evening by Oscar and Phil. Um, basically, we're gonna, um, we to—we're originally going to do three separate presentations, but Phil and I decided, as soon as we live quite close together, and our offices are quite close together, that it would be way more fun to do our presentation together. So, we apologise in advance that we're going to be like the Laurel and Hardy double act, whilst talking about marinas. Let's not answer that question now. And Oscar um, is then going to talk about um, one of Dar's projects, Port of Beirut, which is a really interesting, wide-ranging project, which I'm really sad that I didn't get to work on, um, because it's it's a really interesting project. So um, what Phil and I are going to do is kind of take you through a sort of uh, talking, we're going to talk specifically about marinas because that's what Phil and I are passionate about. The waterfront contains many, many different aspects, but because that's the bit we're excited about, we thought that's what we talk about this evening. So we're going to, uh, kind of between us, I'm going to talk about mostly the kind of overarching strategic planning um, and urban design ideas, and Phil's going to talk to you about the kind of, the more detailed design aspirations of of that kind of environment. What we're hoping is that our presentation will um, kind of be educational and provide you with some opportunities to think about key questions that you might ask if you end up taking that kind of project forward. So, Phil do you want to slot in? Yeah, yeah. We've realized two of us talking when this is being videoed, hi everybody who's watching this on the internet later. It's a little <laughs> tricky because we've got to get ourselves in the right place so Phil's going to jockey.
1: Right.
0: So, we've kind of given you a bit of introduction um, as Robert explained, um, I ended up um, specializing in what I specialize in because I became obsessed with sailing when I was a kid, which means I spend the vast majority of my time in and around marina's waterfront spaces on boats, in boats, in water, anything else I can get my hands on. You can't really train to do it unless you're an engineer, so that's how you end up. People say to me, how do you end up becoming a marina waterfront specialist? And that's the answer, by spending a lot of time in it. Um, I'll let Phil introduce himself and then we'll explain why we're doing this.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, Phil Don. I work with a company called Marina Projects. Similar to Jody, we are a specialist marine consultancy. Um, we're based on the south coast in Gosport, uh, but our projects are worldwide. We have a small office in Hong Kong, um, and we have about a staff of about 12, 13 people. Um, my background is I started as a marine civil engineer. I then moved to a big consultancy. Uh, from there, I went to one of the larger marine operators on the development side. And then more recent, more recent years, I moved across to Marina Projects and now are, are more sort of on the technical side of their, of their um, capabilities. But Marina Projects do everything from operational bits through to feasibility design and vice versa.
0: Um, and as we popped up on here, we're basically going to give you a quick brief introduction to issues and processes involved specifically with, with Marina uh, master plans. We're going to talk about some slightly alternative perspectives on, on some of those processes. We're going to try and introduce some of the benefits and opportunities, but also potential issues to be aware of when in designing in that environment. Um, also an understanding of the specialists that are available we obviously believe specialists are a good thing, because we are specialists, but there's a reason that we do what we do, and we want to explain a little bit more about that. Um, we want to talk about proactive approaches, uh, you're all positive proactive people, because you're here making an effort to educate yourself about you know, a particular issue, um, a lot of people don't bother doing it, and we really wish they would. Um, and also about uh, the importance of, of early input, and as I said, I'm primarily going to talk about land use planning and urban design, and Phil's primarily going to talk about the detail. So we wanted just to talk quickly um, about objectives and added value. Um, everybody knows that if you draw a little blue square on a master plan and you put marina, everyone goes, "Oh, exciting! It's going to be pretty. It's going to have boats and clinky masts and all of that." But there's an awful lot more to it than just drawing the blue blob on the on the plan. Um, so what we're trying to talk about is just to to give you an idea of all the different ways that you could approach that. Are we talking about standalone marina projects? They're a very different ball game to whether we're talking about something that's the focal point for a huge, big mixed-use development, or are we talking about something that stands alone by itself? Are we talking about the kind of marina club process, or are we talking about something that's super-duper functional has a yard attached to it? There's a whole bunch of different ways of approaching this. Um, I'm going to let Phil carry on, because we also... It then go into having established which one we're talking about what kind of atmosphere are we creating and all of this um, has to be thought about before you get to designing in detail.
1: Yeah. I, I think what we're trying to say is, is what is the vision for, for the marina and the development as a whole and what do we see that marina being Is it, um, it varies around the world, each marina has its own character and there can be marinas within the so stones of each other but they're very different you know is it a destination marina or is it a home port marina there are different customers that you will attract according to that and then it's what is the marina is it is it a business entity in itself that will release some value either long term or short term or is it a marina that will probably perhaps just wash its face financially but the real game is in the residential That surrounds it. So it's it's understanding that clear vision right at the start. How are we going to extract the value out of it? How do we maximise it? What is this marina? What is it? What's its function? That's what we're trying to try to convey, and just needs a bit of clarity at the start, because quite often, certainly a client's vision is one thing, but that might not sit with what can be achieved. Will the market sustain in that particular location what the client thinks the marina is going to look like?
0: I think it's fair to say that marinas are a particular example of something where you can never know too much about the particular market that you're going into before you start the design process because it is a really, really critical moment when you work out whether you're producing something that's just going to look pretty but it's not actually going to do a lot or are you trying to produce a functioning business because from a design point of view it makes a huge, huge difference. So, moving on. We wanted just to quickly point out the boring stuff, (laughs) because we know that everybody wants to get really excited and get their colouring crayons out, and I do it too, and I love doing it. But for the marine environment, understanding your site location and aspects of it could not be more important, because this is the bit that trips people up all the time, because you can find all kinds of mean and nasty things. I I could talk for the entire evening just on this topic, dull as it is, but I just wanted to pick up a couple of key points. The first thing, if you ask nothing else, is where does the land stop and where does the water start on your site? It's amazing the number of people that don't understand that the mean high water mark and the mean low water mark, who owns what and where does it start and stop? Because just because you can see some water on the edge of the client's land ownership with a little red line around it, doesn't mean they've got access to it. So, basic principles that you can own down to the mean high watermark, anything below the mean high watermark, chances are the Queen owns that. And if the Queen owns it, you will need to talk to her early. So the Crown Estate will become your friend. So should you ever, ever end up in this position, talk to them early. The other people that you desperately need to talk to very, very early on are the Environment Agency and the Marine Management Organisation. Anything that goes out into the water has to involve these groups. The Marine Management Organisation are a fascinating bunch, I think it would be fair to say. Yeah, an <laughs> interesting bunch. Really, yeah, they're really obsessed with fishing quotas and, and other riveting aspects of European policy. But when they're not worrying about fishing, um, they also worry a lot about dredging. Um, When they're not worrying about fishing and dredging, they're also worrying hugely about where you are building stuff, what's going out, are you going to be pulling material out, have you spoken to the Environment Agency, it pays to talk to them early, even if only in a kind of a conceptual fashion. A lot of people are not really aware of the fact that they're even there, but talking early really does help. Interestingly, um, for all of you to note that they provide all the licensing and consent processes when you get into the detail, but they will consult the environment agency in the same way that the local authority will um, consult the environment agency. They get a double whammy of environment agency for this type of project. And I can't emphasise enough how important those early conversations are because there are so many things that you can find early on that will make that little blue square that you so desperately want to draw just not work at all so would really really emphasize understanding where the land stops and the water starts make sure you you really know where it is and make sure that you're having conversations about those environmental designations early um, because it, it will not pay in the long run to pretend that they're not there because the environment agency they just do not go away i wish they would sometimes but they don't
1: So. Taking those aspects on the environmental side of things and consenting, which I'm still clear on, yeah. <laughs> I can just talk about more physical, physical site aspects, which are a little bit easier um, in some respects. What I think is, is quite key is gathering that data early mm-hmm. and trying to understand the site early to understand what can and can't be achieved. We've assumed that like, we can put some boats in and a marina or a waterside development and marine leisure aspect in front of a development or as a stand alone. But there may be an assumption that we can do that there. You know, is, it, is it deep enough? Is, what's the tidal range? How exposed is it? Um, and all these things have quite an impact. And if we don't get them right, when we come along or we don't consider them early, when we do consider them, It's almost too late and we can't do what we thought we could do and it flips the whole master planning process on its head because you have to go back to the beginning again Um, and a a big one is exposure and the capital investment needed in the UK there are no natural harbors left anymore they're all developed out or they're protected internationally there's a little bit more freedom but the environmental pressures are coming um, if not already there so quite often a site has been earmarked for a marina or a waterfront aspect to it, but it's exposed. And suddenly we come along and go, well, you have to build some big breakwaters. They'll cost you about 60 million euros. And some, all, the whole project team then starts pointing fingers at each other because they are budgeted for that. And it all falls apart. So it's that early understanding, early input, just to try and get around to that master planning process.
0: I think it's worth emphasizing that I spend quite a lot of time reviewing um, concept work that people have developed for early options and that people don't fully appreciate the cost of drawing that little breakwater. That breakwater might cost five or six million, just it's just a line so doing this kind of work whilst it might seem to to, to many of you who are not specialists oh my god how do I collect that data where do I get it from it's actually relatively easy to get hold of a lot of this data and I would definitely say that would emphasize that it's worth spending a little bit of money having a specialist look over something early even if you just chuck a few concept ideas in front of you a good um, marina consultant somebody like Phil will sit there and look at it and will say Yes, no, that might be expensive. But that could save you months and months and months of time later on, and it's frightening how often that doesn't happen. So if you take nothing away from it, try and get that kind of data together early and have a conversation with an engineer, because I, I really wouldn't do it without. So having gone through the process of saying, okay, I've got my data and I still really, really want to draw my my blue bob on my plan. Um, I think it's really important to understand that the the market and the customer base for marinas is very, very diverse compared to uh, the kind of things that you might deal with normally at the moment. Um, So market study is definitely going to be your friend in this process. Are we looking at something that's incredibly high-end? Are we looking at producing the local communal marina? Are we looking at producing something where all of our value comes from residential units on the site and actually the marina is just kind of an add-on on the side? That kind of developing that understanding will all influence how you develop the master plan. I think at this point it's also very, very important to understand whether your client intends to operate or whether your client intends to sell, because it will hugely affect your master planning process, um, the kind of of work that you do. Are you looking to operate that marina and therefore the value that you add is going to be of direct benefit, or are you looking at plot development and selling on? we'd all like to think that urban design is all about adding quality, quality, quality but the reality is if the client is going to sell it you've got to have had a mind to that at the beginning and all of that is about developing an idea of what that customer base looks like. would also suggest that understanding whether you're creating an environment where most of the value is going to come from visitors, i.e. people that are coming in or whether you're looking at uh, all the value coming from resident occupier type environments because again that will will impact on how you lay things out so understanding your customer base is going to be really really important I think um, Phil and I can both give you a long long list of examples as well where Clients will want one thing, and they'll have this idea in their head. It usually involves really, really pretty boats, usually really big, pretty boats, Um, and that's the vision that they've got in their head. But when you actually do the market research about what will work within the marine environment in that particular location doesn't look quite so big and it usually doesn't look quite so pretty. Um, so it, this kind of getting this kind of data together is really, really important because again, like I say, the blue little square might not look quite the same once you actually understand whether people are going to be there in order to spend their money, whether they're going to be there living in it, whether they're going to be there working in it.
1: So once we've understood our market, um and we know our objectives, what we generally do is we, we produce what I've referred to here as a sort of marina profile. And that basically is a documentation of that, of that market analysis, knowing what our market is, where the opportunity is, where the client objectives are, bringing those together, and producing this profile. And that, what then that allows us to do is then go into the master planning and, and, the, and the sort of the start of the concept design work. Um, because it, it may be that we have a market, or a target market, that, that covers quite a few spectrums. And you may not necessarily want to put all of those spectrums in one place. So we end up things like zoning a marina if it's big enough. And you actually start to segregate certain user types, potentially. Some don't sit well with others. Classic is you, you, have a, you may have a local fishing fleet, which you still need to absorb into a marina and then you've got some high-end um yachts and stuff like that, they're not necessarily going to meet, so you have to try and segregate things out a little bit. And that sort of develops into the sort of zoning plan, all part of the marine master planning process, but it's just understanding who, who are your customers, what are, what are their needs, how they're going to react, and, and, ha- and what relationship have they got with the land side, as, as Jody says. Are, there, are they people that also own residence there? Are they people that just keep their boat there but live elsewhere? Are there people visiting? Is it a visiting marina? Is it a home port marina where you, you buy a berth in that marina because you want, a, you want a base? So all these things you need to understand.
0: So for a lot of you, I suspect that how the marina appears is often as part of a wider mixed use scheme. Um, and it's one part of a whole bunch of opportunities which you've got to try and balance. So I just wanted to quickly kind of flip through some of the issues and opportunities around some of the sort of typical complementary land uses, things that you can combine well with Marina. Um, and generally these tend to be grouped by location, roughly. There are examples that, that kind of cross the group, but. Primarily in the UK and Europe, you'll see a lot of residential and linked commercial development, um, and the reason for that, I think, primarily because residential land values are so high, particularly in the UK, um, it, it makes an awful lot of sense that you can rack them and stack them high in a marina environment. Um, it's, I think primarily because you get that feeling of space visually without actually having to have the space on the ground. The marina is the perfect place for the, the apartment with the nice big windows but it only needs a tiny balcony because you still get that feeling of space to it. And because land values are so high there's often a need in order to make things viable financially to keep those kind of values up. So residential makes a lot of sense for an awful lot of marina operators. Um, and. I think also what's interesting, particularly about the UK market and the European market, is that there's a lot of marine-based commercial businesses that actually can operate independently and run a site here because there's such a huge amount of money um, within the marine businesses, and I can't remember what the number is, and I'm really wishing I could, my brain's gone blank, but it's it's something like three billion is what the, mar- what the marine market is worth to the UK economy. So providing kind of commercial development is actually can be a, a really financially sensible way of making things viable. Um, in the UK um, and Europe, be really aware that we love owning boats, absolutely love it. And here we tend to have really high, high ownership levels. And that means that you can sometimes in certain locations look at the marina as one option and the land option as another. Um, I put these examples down on the bottom, these are Ocean Village in Southampton, which lots of people who are into their boating will be aware of, but what's really interesting about that is that if you see those sort of four big buildings in the centre over on the far side, um, they're commercial office buildings. Um, and they work really well within a marine location. Why is that? Because they work nine till five and the marina and all the residential units fill the rest of the day, creates activity 24-7, 365 days a year. And it's not necessarily what other people would think of as a really great marine use, but in the UK it works very, very well. Um, And later on we'll talk about everybody's Deep Joy car parking, and that is a brilliant idea for shared car parking. (laughs) Whizzing through, though, if you work internationally, um, and a lot of us that specialise do because there aren't many of us, um, you'll see a slightly different bent, um, mostly because there's a lot more land. But it's not unusual um, to find hotels, lots of hotels. I don't know if, if many of you are working particularly in the Gulf, but you'll always find a hotel attached to a marina. The primary reason for that is drink. (laughs) <laughs> because hotels are where you can put bars. If you can put bars in, you can have a more westernized social atmosphere, and that means you often get marinas combined with hotels, combined with golf clubs, combined with spas. Those land uses work really well together because of that particular um, social um, issue, which you're not likely to be aware of unless you kind of operated in that particular region. But for a lot of marinas, you'll always find a hotel attached to them for that reason. Um, Phil will also no doubt tell you a little bit about some of the work he's done where the hotel also for the high-end um, project worked really really well too finally and Phil's chiving me along because he's right talking for too long <laughs> um, is also that marinas are an interesting foil for um, retail and feature leisure facilities. I don't know if everyone's aware of this. this one of Portsmouth, which has obviously got the giant spinnaker tower. Gunworth Keys, which is a huge, big retail development. And then quite a lot of residential to the back and a tiny little marina in the front. Um, and this is a really cracking example, actually, of a marina that works really, really well. But it hardly, it, no one actually berths their boat there long term. It's purely for events. Um, and charter work, um, large-scale sort of um, races come into there and it works incredibly well as a foil for the public space. Um, The architecture is okay, but it's not massively exciting. The public spaces are okay, they're functional, Uh, they they work quite well, some of them are nicer than others, but as a a functioning space, if you were to look at an example of a big-size mixed-use master plan with a marina on the front, it works very, very well, um, and is a, a good example of combining up, and the public plazas work particularly well. You get the amphitheatre effect on it. Um, and, I, yeah, it's, it's, you see a lot more of this in large cities. Uh, everywhere should have a, a large sort of dock dockfront um, event space. They work particularly well.
1: Jay's talked about some, some of the indirect complementary land uses. I would just highlight the ones that are more directly related to the marina and sort of sailing, boating, yachting, that aspect. So on the one hand, you've got the the obvious ones, the charneries, the brokerages, um, yacht management companies. They will, if you can attract them, they will add viability to the development. They will feed off the marina and vice versa. they are linked and you need one to help the other. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, but once you get them, then they're almost start to get self-perpetuating. Boats will come to that marina because those services are there. Those services will expand because they have, they have a client base as well. Secondly, to that are the sort of uses and, and complementary bits that your boaters will use, um, such as the yacht clubs, Um, the bars and cafes, um, spas, um, and so on. There is, um, in the UK, there's a slightly different culture to, as James mentioned, to elsewhere in the world. Um, If you go to China, for example, they're preoccupied by clubs. Um, And a marina, you belong to the club, not the marina. Uh, Where in the UK, traditionally, it's been a marina, which is somewhere you park your boat. That's all that happens there think things are changing, customer demands are changing, and so it's not just where you park your boat, there are other facilities that you'll use on-site as well. In An example being is project we've been involved with, Port of Montenegro. It is a very seasonal marina, and to try and counter that, what has been developed, what the clients be very receptive to, is adding a health spa, the right bars, um, fitness centre and that's for the paid cruiser boats. It's not for necessarily for the customers; it's for the paid cruise because they know during the winter and out of season that's what they want. And if you can get the crews and the skippers to stay there, the boat stays there and you keep that income and activity throughout the year. So it's trying to understand what your, what your customer needs. Can you point out where these places are? Um, I mean, roughly. <laughs> roughly, the morning rain not good you enough. Know. All right, that that, that is Port Montenegro. That is the um, what they call Porra Beach, which is a beach club right on the front of, of the development there. Um, it's recently just gone. It was operated by Porra Beach. It's actually now come back into the owner of the, the actual developers, taking it back onto running. Uh, and and effectively, if you have a berth on that marina you can belong to this club or you also have automatic membership of this club and it's where you can go have uh, drink and just yeah. just lounge out. Um, I think that's I think the bottom left is port port forum I think. From the top one I'm not sure. I think that is sorry can you say the in country? It? Yeah, um, that's country that I think is I'm not sure. I think that's Italy. I think that is also Italy. Um, That's quite a new marine, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it's quite an interesting one because there's a lot of what you see there is retail shops, restaurants right on the front, right on the peninsula, right to where the boats moor. It's getting this balance. There are some boat owners that will not want to be in that position. They'd rather be on a pier that is isolated and secure. There are customers. Charter companies and customers that charter a boat want to be right on the public realm. They want to be seen. So there is this difference, and it's it's getting that balance right. As we go through, I'll try and pick out some of the other locations.
0: So I'm not going to... You guys are all uh, professionals who know full well how the urban design process works. Not... Going to bother doing teaching grammar okay, to suck eggs? That will be entirely pointless. But what I wanted to to pop out was just some of the <coughs> key issues that I find often get forgotten when I'm going in a, and talking to people. And a lot of the time, I think it's understanding what uses will serve both the site and the wider audience and as an urban designer how the heck you manage to get things to face in both directions because if you can get things to face in both directions to serve both the site and the outside you add a huge amount of value Um, so I think a lot of the time it's understanding how you can draw people in from outside, which makes sites more attractive commercially, but that also adds a useful function. The classic is trying to make um, the sort of the cafe restaurant environment work really, really well. We see it done a lot in Europe. Um, you get some fantastic examples of that kind of promenade space. But in the UK, we're not so good at understanding kind of how those spaces work and getting the access elements correct. Um, and It's understanding whether your site is going to have a hard or a permeable edge. And again, you see a lot of examples in the UK where the marina puts walls around itself. I think it would be fair to say that there's often a gate, there's a wall, there's a security fence, and everything happens inside it. You go to Europe, Things are a little more permeable, and it works so much better if you, can, if you can make that happen. But how you deal with the security is a really, really critical issue. How you integrate across the site is definitely one of the key issues that, that I come across. Um, This is actually um, such a shame this project I suspect will not go ahead due to the fact it's in the Ukraine. (laughs) Um, So sadly at the moment they kind of have slightly more important things to worry about than whether they're going to develop a nice marina. Um, But this particular site was really interesting because off to the left, which sadly you can't see on this image, was basically a long, long promenade going towards the town centre. Down on the right, down kind of where Phil stood, was the best local beach. And this created this really nice dumbbell effect. And one of the key issues for this particular option was to try and develop that process of being able to walk through the site. Because, of course, you create the footfall through, suddenly you've got way more value added to that commercial property. But the owner of the site also wanted to include residential, so we need permeability from the back and from the front um, and that can often be a challenge is how to hide the kind of the gobbins and, it, and it's not just marinas that, that have those kinds of issues where you kind of hide all the workings in order to look in both directions. Um, and in terms of hiding it <laughs> I wanted just to talk briefly about visual impact because I think a lot of people I'll see pretty pictures of marinas and they look lovely, Um, but there's a lot of tricky stuff when you get into the technical aspects of it, which are kind of hard to hide. So just to pick out a couple, now if you can see the stacks of boats, dry stacking is something that's becoming really, really prevalent and Phil will show you some examples of that in in, in a couple of slides time visually they are really difficult things they're not pretty they're just great big stacks full of boats they've got to be right next to the water's edge and visually they're a complete nightmare and they're not things that people want to look out onto neither are the great big sheds in the back and there's a lot of kind of working stuff that You need to be able to get right in close to the water, but how you hide it is a really big challenge. Um, And again, I think it's one of those things that's worth identifying right at the beginning. If somebody says to you, I want to put a marina in, do they want to put a marina in or do they want to put a boatyard in? Because the two things are very, very different and visually they can have a huge impact on what you put around it. And also that a large volume of boats has a significant visual impact. particularly if they're motorboats, which sounds really odd to say, but if they're large and white and plastic and have a high side on them, they can block a view like nothing else. And it's interesting because Phil and I have both worked on either side of an interesting project in the Lake District where they were looking at a marina extension. And one of the issues with it was if you're stood on the side of, in this particular case, Lake Windermere in the national park and you have the marina extension, what's the impact of that? Well, because the boats are getting bigger, it actually meant if you stood on the lake shore, you couldn't see as far. And so there's all kinds of issues like that that people don't necessarily appreciate. That forest of of masts is not particularly visually permeable or not as visually permeable as you'd think. So those are just two tiny little examples of things that are worth thinking about early. That that big block of birthing that you're gonna put in, it's gonna have beautiful stuff and it's gonna have activity, but it's also gonna have a visual impact. Ooh. Two minutes.
1: Um, so it was just a really a sort of a all encompassing statement, really, about the master planning process um, and trying to get that, that continuity across the site, understanding um, the relationships, um, what customers we got, where, the layout of that, that marina, so access is easy. As Julie says, the visual aspects are still maintained by positioning certain piers and jetties in certain ways um, and getting that integration, getting that connection of the two, and trying to, and trying to fulfill the, the sort of maximum value that, that comes out of it. Um, I'll tell you what these, in terms of where these are, uh, bottom left is Cascais, Portugal. Uh, this is a project actually in, in Melbourne, Port Phillip Bay. Um, middle one, I'm not sure, I think that's Middle East. Um, and the top one is actually Jersey, Harbour's, uh, Jersey Harbour on the Channel Islands. Um, but it's getting that c- connectivity. We were involved with Wyndham Harbour, which is in, in Melbourne. And what we were trying to get across to the client there was they were looking at it very much as two, two well, actually three entities. A marina, a dry stack and a residential development. They didn't link the three at all. Um, and we were trying to get that process going up because in all, that would raise the value of everything.
0: So, I think you'll probably have gathered that we, we could spend, well, people write theses on this for a reason, we could spend all night talking about it, but one of the key things that keeps popping out over and over again, and if we were just going to try and emphasise some key points about this, is that Access and circulation are one of the problems that we see all the time, um, and primarily because there's a real challenge um, and a tension between issues to do with safety and security and commerciality. Uh, and as an urban designer in doing this kind of work, I think find it one of, one of the biggest challenges is making those things work well. If you have a, an operational marina site, the actual marina itself is a bunch of pretty boats sat on pontoons. Inherently, that's not too much of an issue from a safety point of view. If you have an operational yard next to it with boats being whizzed around on the top of cranes, it's not really the kind of environment that you want members of the public wandering around in. So. But people love watching it absolutely fascinated by it. They love sitting and, and, and seeing that kind of activity. So how it, there's an awful lot of work to do with trying to make it so that you can capture that vibrancy of seeing it, but not actually letting people into it. In the UK we're really great at just sticking a big fence around it, but actually if you can find a way to make that connection visually to allow people to see it absolutely love it one of the most popular cafes in the village that i live in is right on the entrance to one of the local yards the yard itself is not particularly pretty but there's boats whizzing around on containers all day every day and you can sit just inside the entrance where you're safe and sit and have a cup of coffee and watch these boats whizz around it's a tiny little cafe it doesn't you know produce anything particularly spangly but it's really really popular because of that visual connection with a boatyard, which shouldn't work, but it really, really does. And it's unfortunate that if they would thought more about that in the beginning, we could have created a far bigger space, more room to sit outside, you know, all those simple little things that would have actually, from an urban design point of view, made it work so much better. Um, security can also be a real issue because people, strangely enough, if they've spent an awful lot of money on their boat, don't particularly want people wandering around. Phil will show you some examples of some of the issues of of putting security um, elements into detailed design in a moment. But at the same time, you also want that commerciality and for people to be able to access things. So um, I see that as one of the key things to think about, is how you can make the site safe, make it secure, but still create that commerciality. Um, and also that large-scale public access, particularly if you're looking at sites like, for instance, Wharf Keys, can be a real challenge. Is thinking about how you get large numbers of people in, um, because a lot of these spaces are very popular for large-scale public events, um, and often that kind of um, ingress and egress of large numbers of people doesn't get considered in the process. Um, I would show as an example, just so we were talking about where things are. The the site on the left, that's actually in Kuwait. For my sins, I have spent quite a lot of time in Kuwait. And it's a classic example that, this is a really nice Corniche area. I was actually out riding a bike along there. And you can just see on the left, there's the wall. The Corniche stops, bang, and then there's the yard. And it's a real shame because in the design process, if they'd made that edge more permeable so you could see through it, you could have developed a way round the back, literally the cycle path stops and that happens an awful lot. That that you've got that nice edge treatment, people enjoy maneuvering their way along the coastline and then you've got, bang, some bit of infrastructure and nobody's really thought about how it's connected and the value they could have added if they'd spent a little more time thinking about it. Um, On the right, an award-winning car park. <laughs> this is um, the uh, car park that was developed in Ocean Village in Southampton which I'm told has won many awards. Um, I think they were going for a kind of Guggenheim type look for it. Um, but interestingly this was developed to deal with one of the key problems you see in a lot of older marinas which is car parking and I know every single land use we could talk about would have problems with car parking. but. Marinas often you find you go in older ones, and the car parking's right at the front. and The cars have got a really great view of the marina, but the cars aren't really paying the money. The people are paying the money, and that land could be used far more functionally. In Ocean Village, they built a new car park at the back in order to free up all their surface car parking. But there was a really interesting conversation where we turned around and we said, Okay, well, that's great. Where are the drop off areas for people who are bringing in heavy kit? Oh, we haven't put one of those in. Oh, that's not going to work very well. And also, if I park my car in the car park, how am I then going to get down all of those steps to get into the marina with my giant trolley full of sails, bags of sailing kit, the camp stove and everything else? And that connection between car parking and the marina facilities is really, really important. Um, it sounds completely banal, like the kind of thing that you would tell a, you know, a first-year undergrad but car parking causes us so, so many headaches because marinas are quite unique in the sense that you need to be able to get access to the water with a vehicle, but you also want to be trying to pull those vehicles back away from the water in order to keep the land with the most value for, um, for other uses. So yeah, car parking and car park management is your friend, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I'd endorse <laughs> that. People are inherently lazy. And uh, sailing and boating, people, are owner, guests, and those of kit, and they faff about, <laughs> and they will want to drive up to the back of their boat if they can. Uh, so it's just making, we have to recognise their needs, but it's how you manage that is, is the key thing. You have to accept people will drive to the back of their boat, and when you get to the more expensive boats and stuff, the guests, that is what they will expect, to drive right to the back and get on the boat and go. Um, Just talking a little bit further about the sort of access and circulation, and this is really just to highlight the the needs and the operations of a marina and how it functions and breathes. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. You've got people deliveries or people going down to their boats by car and stuff. There will be deliveries. You have um, a lot of boats will take parts, um, servicing, um, provisions, and they are specialist provisions quite often. So that's seven and a half t- trucks going down there and they will need to get there. Um, you have services, so people servicing the boats, they will need to get down there. Um, and coupled with that, you've got security. Jenny's talked about security from the point of the boat owner likes his boat knowing he's, it's secure, it's safe. But if your marina is, um, it has to comply legislatively wise, and it may comply with ISPS, coding, so it needs to be secure from that point of view. and that Something just to consider at the start, where are your customers going to go? Where are your police going to go? Because they're all going to have to be accommodated somewhere on this. Um, but it's a management process, because you don't, you don't want a gated structure or a gated um, development, so it's that balance and how you control that security to get the, get the value. Still service your clients, they can do what they want, but everybody enjoys it. And that adds to the whole vibrancy and the value of the whole development site. Um, where these are, um, bottom left is Porto Montenegro again. Middle one, uh, bottom is Antibes, France. That's the main pier, Super Yacht Pier, Antibes. That's the main pier at uh, Porto Montenegro, Jetty One. The top one, I think, I'm not sure what I think, do we think that's we I think think that's in Barcelona. Yeah. I think it was one of the Volvo stop offs for one of the events um, coming to light there. So it was just following on sort of management, deliveries, we can control the timing of deliveries, we can have drop-off points for cars so that the cars then go to the back of the development so they're not kept in the prime position. We can provide alternative um, transport for our customers on site. So we can manage it to make it work, but we just need to think about it from the onset.
0: Yeah, I think if we just flip back a second... I think it would be fair to say that there's an awful lot of interesting challenges for um, landscape architects within the marine environment because you get an awful lot of um, public sort of uh, street furniture that you might not necessarily find in other places. Interestingly, these um, lovely glass doors have become more and more prevalent when you're trying to create that connection between the waterfront but still maintain security. If you, uh, unfortunately I haven't got a good picture of it, but if you walk down the front if if anyone's been to Palma in Majorca, they've managed a really interesting feat of connecting up this fantastic public waterfront but it's got all these huge marinas on the other side of it. How have they done it? by putting this kind of really nice sleek looking furniture down so that you've got the security but you've still got the visual connection all the way down and it's quite a, a, an interesting way they have begun to solve the problem of creating a high quality Waterfront landscape environment, but still providing the security options. But like I say, there's a whole world of street furniture out there that you don't, you know, that definitely doesn't normally appear on the sort of the standard uh, catalog profiles. But yeah, it's definitely getting better and higher quality, I would say.
1: So I just wanted, and that's two slides. Just talk quite quickly about we talked about complementary services. These are more the direct services that that the marine-related industry will need if it's if the if the marine is going to function and be viable in its own right. So, operationally wise, we've got environmental controls, response, and stuff like that, which is the marine management system. That's fine. Um, in terms of conflict, it, it's it's as Jenny's mentioned before, commercial operations in a in a development in which is. A site that is a, 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 a resort-type site, so they don't necessarily mix. Welfare facilities is a is a classic problem we come against, and that is basically I'm talking about toilets and showers for your customers. And again and again, toilets and showers are not they're not glamorous, so they get thrown to the back of the site. So the classic visualization that I always have is I've built this multi-million-pound development. It's the best thing since the spread. It rivals Monaco and all the best sites in the whole world. I've got a marina and every morning at eight o'clock, I've got this guy in his box of shorts with a towel over his shoulder and he walks right through the site to get to the facilities. And it's just understanding. We need to bring them into the position where we stop that. And, we, and there's just the layout needs to understand that. I put Boat down because really, if a marina is of a size and is a, a, a functioning well, there needs to be a boat yard and a service yard in the locality. It doesn't have to be on site, but it needs to be in the locality. Because if it's not, where do I get my boat serviced? It will impair the viability of that marina, the occupancy of that marina. That has a knock-on effect to the vibrancy of the whole site. So you just need to understand that. that and We need to check that, there's, that the boat yard and those facilities are around. Same with a slipway. I can get boats in by sea, but if I want to bring it by land, how do I get it in the water to get it into the marina? So it's just bringing all these things together, really.
0: I think this comes back to the point about market research, is understanding what else is around your site, because marinas do have such a very specific set of requirements in order to keep them vibrant. We were talking about examples of where they've got it wrong before we came in here, and, and we've both been out so there's a fantastic site in Doha, and and you go into Doha and they built the Pearl and it's a huge marina and it's very good quality but it has absolutely none of the service facilities around it and the thing is empty and that's dragging down the value of all this fantastic real estate that they've built around it because in the master planning process they didn't appreciate that they hadn't got the ability to provide the services required so you've effectively created a kind of a damp squib in the middle and, and that wasn't the idea in the first place so those kind of small things are really, really important they probably don't seem important to anybody who's not into marinas but they really really are
1: uh, well, this is also one of the last slides was just basic infrastructure utilities and don't underestimate what the marina might need in the uk small modest marinas not a problem We can serve those quite quite readily when you go to the bigger sites more the super yachts they they really take a draw a super yacht some of the largest sort of 50 meter super are akin to a small boutique hotel. Once the chillers are working, the air conditioning, the pool, the jacuzzi, everything's working, it is drawing megawatts. And they will generally rather switch off their generators and their water makers and plug into the shore. It's price driven, but that's what they'd like to do. And a classic example was, something I'm really frustrated about is this slide here in the middle at the bottom, is Port of Montenegro, where we have a lot of super yachts, we worked out what the power was from them, and then, because of that power demand, we ended up with big substations on our piers, big monolithic blocks on our piers, and I hate them. And if we... In retrospect, could we have done it in a slightly different way? We didn't do that. But the point I'm making is, is if we've got certain mix of berths, the draw can be quite quite significant. And legislation is probably going to drive the industry to plugging into shore rather than using our onboard generators. So ready to wrap up, ready?
0: Now that we've bored you all with all our fascination, with all the intricate details of what it takes to design, we would basically suggest that A lot of the time it's all about confirming what the client vision is. And I know that everybody says this about every (coughs) kind of development format, but we find a lot that there's a big difference between the client vision for what their marina might involve and what the reality is when you actually get to doing the market research. going into that, then trying to understand exactly what the character and objectives of that development is. I hope that, that if nothing else, we've given you a flavour for the fact that there's a really broad spectrum, that marinas don't come in one size fits all, and there's actually a huge range and variety with an awful lot of different needs, which from a master planning perspective would have a huge impact on on what it is that you're trying to achieve. we hope that we've also scared the crap out of you about some of the, some of the technicalities of the, the, the specialist side of design that actually early involvement of specialists pays dividends, even if all you do is turn around and say, I've, you know, I'm, I'm in that real early stage, I'm throwing together options for something that's quite kind of high level. Paying for a day of somebody's time, who's an engineer, who can turn around and go, that'll work, that won't work, oh, that's kind of interesting, why don't you try this, will be well worth it in the long run, because it's amazing how many things that are just scribbled out, that nobody's really thought through the engineering implications of, suddenly end up being detailed up, and then suddenly we're doing the maths, and oh my God, and it doesn't work, and it's amazing how often that happens. In order to avoid all of that, understanding the market is really, really critical. Um, It is a very specialist area of work, it doesn't work the same way as the standard land uses that we all come across day in and day out, and market research will really help you and will definitely help you to add value. A lot of that is about working with stakeholders. Um, I think I've put it in the article that I wrote in the magazine for this quarter, was that actually talking with stakeholders early, you don't need to be a specialist and to know lots about it yourself, because actually if you get out there and you talk to the guy that's already running the yard down the road or the guy from the Environment Agency, they'll provide you with heaps of information. They're usually really, really keen to impart you know what they need and how it might function better and don't you realise that that's been happening around the corner? It, it sounds really basic, but a lot of people shy away from talking to stakeholders because they think they don't understand the marine environment and therefore they might get into a conversation that they're not quite comfortable with. I would definitely say that those slightly uncomfortable conversations are well worth having. Um, again, technical data, I think, falls into the same category, that it might not be something you're completely comfortable with, but the sooner you get it, and you can always throw it in front of those stakeholders and say, I've collected up this data, what does it mean? Talk to me about it. We'll definitely pay you dividends as well. Um, and finally, I think um, we all, as urban designers, are obviously very, very keen to create quality and, um, and, and a... And a and a fantastic functional environment. But if you get it wrong early on with marinas, what happens, I'm sorry, Phil, cover your ears, the engineers will design it. If you get it wrong at the beginning. And if the engineers design it, it will not be functional and it will not be beautiful. It will be an engineering solution. And that-
1: Unconverted engineers.
0: Okay, that makes it all right. Uh, that if you, if you go in and you do that detailed work early, um, you'll, you won't lose the quality that we're trying to add to these, to these kinds of spaces. I think that is the end of our talk. And,
1: and that just, that's Port Montenegro. <laughs> <laughs> so you know where it is.
0: Thank you very right. much.